Let's talk. Docs. Welcome to Let's Talk Docs, a show where we explore the intersection of technical docs, open source, and community. This is your host, Portia and Eric. Here at Let's Talk Docs, we reach out to folks in the field who are elevating the craft of writing and maintaining documentation. You'll hear stories about technologists who fostered a culture of learning and inclusion through documentation. And today we are talking to Aisha Blake, Director of Developer Relations at Pluralsight, a theater kid turned tech community leader. She's a speaker, conference organizer, and teacher. Her belief in the power of song as a pedagogical tool gave rise to Title of Conf, a musical tech conference, and she will never say no to karaoke. Welcome, Aisha. Yay! Yay. I really need some sound effects here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for inviting me. Awesome, 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 awesome. So let's just kick this off. I'm so glad that you're here. And I want to start with what the heck is a developer relations engineer? I know I did not know what that was. I don't know that position existed 10 years ago. So could you enlighten us? What exactly is a developer relations engineer? Cool. Yeah. Okay. We're diving right in. So developer relations engineer is one flavor of a whole range of titles that you'll see in developer relations teams or developer experience teams. In the case of my most recent team at New Relic, for the most part, everybody on the team was a developer relations engineer for most of my time there. And the idea there is mostly that we're communicating that we are engineers. We are technical people with firsthand knowledge of the problems that our developers are trying to solve. We've kind of been in their shoes and we're able to advocate for them. And also we do that through building technical content, which might include enablement pieces like a library or a sample app or something along those lines. That's maybe in contrast to something like a developer experience engineer, where maybe you're working directly on an API, something like that. I so different so than a developer avocado, which I see on Twitter all the time. <laughs> she is not a fruit. We're not fruits. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not a fruit. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's similar. It can be really similar. And of course, it depends on where you are. Different companies certainly assign responsibilities to the same roles very differently. But in general, I found that my time as a developer relations engineer was pretty close to what I typically ascribe to an advocate role. Yeah, it seems like kind of the DevRel kind of ecosystem is really trying to figure out how to kind of explain what it does to the kind of larger software ecosystem, right? I think documentation as well, like job titles, the amount of code versus writing versus I'm sure in in your world, a little bit more of the kind of the speaking part of it, the kind of engagement on 
in the, with the community one-on-one or, you know, on Twitter, these different platforms, I feel like everybody's still trying to figure out exactly how it all fits together. And so it's, it's exciting. I mean, this is my understanding of it is it's a little bit more recent in the industry that it's kind of gotten more professionalized. Companies are really starting to kind of invest more in it. And that's really exciting that you're able to kind of, it sounds like it plural site, you're going to be having a lot of that decision-making authority. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, nice. I'm excited about that. <laughs> but yeah, even among people in the discipline, there is discussion about where <laughs> it's an evolving title. Exactly. It's like, there's discussion around where things belong and what really is even the like umbrella title. Is it developer advocacy? Is it experience? Is it relations? I lean more towards developer experience as encompassing really the breadth of what we do the best. And then within that, you might have a developer advocacy team and a documentation team and maybe a developer education team. So developer experience is the umbrella and documentation team, developer advocate, they all fall under that umbrella of developer experience. Ideally, yes, Ideally. That's, my, that's my opinion. But you will find some very strongly held opinions that disagree with that. And that's okay. I was ready to say, what is the not ideal case? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> most often you'll find, whatever you call it, you'll find these types of roles that are either under marketing or engineering. And honestly, in an ideal world, I'd love to see more companies moving towards breaking developer experience out into its own org. Would that the, be in, in kind of the engineering organization or would it actually be it's, it's wholly separate kind of marketing, sales? Separate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and that's kind of why, because it encompasses so much that is traditionally attributed to disciplines with more of a history. So right, marketing, a little bit of sales sometimes, but also very, very deeply rooted in engineering. And there's a lot of overlap and there are a lot of opportunities for collaboration between developer experience and other teams most of the time in my experience. But... I think it makes sense to build out a developer experience organization that is its own entity, that has its own goals and metrics and has autonomy and then can support and collaborate with other parts of the organization where it makes sense. One thing that is really difficult you know, people talk about a lot is, is measuring developer relations or developer experience. Sounds very familiar. Uh, measuring <laughs> the exactly. metrics. Exactly. Metrics. So when you're part of another organization, often you're trying to fit what you're doing to that organization's metrics. And that doesn't necessarily make sense. I think this is a very unique and quietly revolutionary idea because when you're on Twitter and when you're on like Dev.2, you hear these arguments about, well, where does developer experience belong? Does it belong in engineering? Does it belong in marketing? Does it belong in sales? And 
what you're telling us is it belongs on its own. Like it, none of the above. <laughs> none of the yeah. above. Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of the above. <laughs> I've not experienced it yet, but I, you know, I got hope. <laughs> you got a vision. <laughs> have, it makes sense. We see organizations like Netlify doing this. So you have, you know, Jason Langstroth, who's VP of, I believe, developer experience. And so like, I think it can be done. Maybe soon to be doing well. And I am hoping that we get to see more companies really investing, one, really investing in developer experience and two, allowing their developer experience teams to kind of build a roadmap that makes sense for them and their goals, recognizing the inherent value in developer experience. But I think that part has to come first. You have to agree like, yes, this is a worthwhile pursuit. We're going to invest time and money and energy into this team. Yeah. And so I'm really metrics that make sense for developing experience. Yeah. And so while I am going to be working within the marketing organization at Pluralsight, I'm excited because part of that conversation, me coming into the role was that I would be able to really shape our metrics and our goals along with marketing leadership. I see so many echoes here of the kind of documentation ecosystem. And then a lot of the questions we're asking as well around intrinsic value versus using other people's metrics to kind of shoehorn the value you provide into these reduced support requests or increased marketing value or, you know, whatever, right? It, it rings so true. And so I guess one of the questions I would have is, do you view kind of documentation as owned within this new org that you're imagining as part of the kind of developer experience? Because I feel like we're both kind of floating and we don't quite know where we belong. And I think the, the somewhat obvious, but quietly revolutionary, I love that phrasing for sure. Like it's its own thing, right? Like it has its own inherent value. And I, I love that vision. So what is documentation part of that in your mind? I believe that it is. Going back to my time working specifically on documentation, functionally, this is a Gatsby. Functionally, I was kind of floating for a while. <laughs> I was on a documentation team for a while. I was, I was a documentation team and we moved back and forth. We were, I think when I started, I was part of the engineering org. Then for a while, I'm in product marketing. I went back to engineering for a while. <laughs> and that is a lot of moving around for like a year, right? You were yeah. asking for a year. <laughs> it was a lot, but you know, there was a lot going on. <laughs> but that is I, true. I, I think they don't quite know how to think about it, right? It really depends on what they're going like, to Like you can kind of view documentation, you can view kind of developer relations through whatever kind of lens that the high level organizational goals, you can kind of like look at it that way and you can see value coming out of it, which shows so much, you know, the fact that it has so much value in so many different kind of verticals within an organization shows the inherent value of it, but it also shows that tension and, and kind of the, the churn that can result. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I believe that documentation is such a vital part of the developer experience that that if you're going to have a developer experience team, 
then documentation has to be like a pillar of it. Say it louder for the folks in the back. (laughs) (laughs) So many times documentation is an afterthought and like documentation really is, as you said before, the key to a developer experience, because that's like where developers first learn about who you are and if they should spend time with you and your product. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, I'd like to take just a, a step back. So we did begin this podcast with zero chill, but <laughs> but I want to learn more about you. Can you tell me how does a theater kid, how does a nice theater kid like you get into developer relations? Like, what does that path look like? <laughs> Honestly, I see a lot of connections. So when I was just beginning my career, I, I moved to Detroit as a Jesuit volunteer. I did my year of service. And within that year, because I had a computer science background, my degree is in information science. I was sort of tricked into teaching, <laughs> teaching web development and robotics. Like, hey, you know about computers? Like, <laughs> Literally, that is actually what he said. Those were his words. Really? <laughs> my boss at the time was like, do you know about computers? And he, he brings up the degree. And I was like, yeah, okay. You could say that. <laughs> and I was like, but I'm not going to have to teach them anything, right? I'm imagining like, oh, they need someone to be with the students because it's an after school thing. And like, okay, sure. You know, I live around the corner. Well, that's fine. <laughs> Lo and behold, not even show up the first day, but just like start reading the expectations for this program that we were doing at the school. And I was like, oh, (laughs) hold on. This requires me to have skills that I do not have. And (laughs) that actually was the catalyst for me reaching out to a local women in tech group, which I eventually became like a teacher for and then a leader of. So, you know, silver lining. But yeah, I, I got started teaching really before I was a developer myself. And that led to a job as an actual instructor at a coding boot camp. That was my first paid job <laughs> and the speaker after that. Yeah. And and so those sorts of things just kind of piled on over the years. I'm, I'm speaking and I'm writing and I'm teaching and I'm running meetups and I'm organizing conferences. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, it really kind of makes sense for me to start looking for developer relations type role. It's like, I'm already doing the job. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. And that's a pretty similar story for a lot of folks that I know. You know, I was kind of doing it before I knew it was an option, a career option. I think that story is so powerful and so needed because I think we really underestimate how serendipitous these like careers begin. And I think that we do this really unnecessary gatekeeping about, well, do you have a CS degree? Like not only is it, it can be toxic, but it also doesn't reflect the reality of the shapes of our careers. Oh yeah, for sure. I tell people all the time, I remember almost nothing from my degree, but (laughs) I have a piece of paper that says, I know computer science. And depending on 
in my case, actually, it did kind of like spark, but that was it. And for a lot of folks, not having a computer science degree or not having a degree at all, that's a real barrier and it doesn't have to be. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. I love this through line as well of of teaching. I feel like one of the big things I see in the documentation community is that love of explaining, that love of kind of connection that comes in the form of teaching. And I imagine developer relations is the same kind of impulse, right? Like you're kind of sharing information, you're getting things out there, you're really helping people along in their journey. And I, I love that as kind of a, I feel like we've had that come up a few different times in our conversations thus far. And I just love, yeah, like the people that are gatekeeping, it's like everyone comes to this differently. Like there's no well-paved path into like, like here's where you get your developer relations certificate. <laughs> and then, you know, and maybe, there's, maybe they're starting to be right, but it, it's so fascinating. That's one of the questions we always have. And the, the answers are always so interesting. You know, you have journalists, you have people that come through teaching people that just have so many different backgrounds. And I just, I love that as a, a way to kind of, yeah, I don't know. Like there is no like obvious path. So like all paths are equally valid in my mind. <laughs> and I think by itself, that's such a frustrating answer until you listen to I stories like Aisha, where it's like, okay, th- this is what it looks like. There's not a path, but here are some examples of how other people have done it. Yeah. And it's hard for me to say, to recommend rather. It's hard for me to give the advice like, oh, well, if you just, you know, speak at a bunch of conferences and write a blog consistently and are tweeting all the time, like then maybe you'll get a job. Like, that's not it. (laughs) It's an incredibly hard thing. (laughs) Right. Right. I don't mean to say that at all. I'm saying if those are things that you enjoy already, this might be a career that you would enjoy. Keeping in mind, that's, of course, not all there is to it. But if you are doing some form of technical writing, whether that's writing documentation or like maybe you are the engineer who cares about documentation on your team, like maybe you're the one who is always reminding people that, oh, you you made a change. Is it reflected in the docs? Maybe you're the one that put it in the PR template. Or maybe you are also a theater kid and (laughs) you like being on stage. Maybe you're a teacher, like a school teacher, which it's funny. I grew up in a family full of teachers and I, from a very young age, was like, never will I ever. That takes a strength that I do not have. (laughs) And, you know, then wound up teaching adults. But it snuck it snuck up on you there. Like, <laughs> I, I have a similar story as well, where I like took the to the roundabout way to something that's like looks a little bit similar to what my parents did, but, but not at all the same. But like it's still, yeah, some of the same kind of core skills. Nice, nice. Let's take a hard right here and go on to the next question. Once again, like Aisha, thank you so much for sharing your story because so many people. I mean, they'll be able to get some inspiration and some like practical points on where to go. I don't want to talk too much, but I want to shout out to one of your blog posts about being paid as a speaker. So if you do find yourself speaking and you're still like in between, even if you are like in developer relations, Aisha will have it in the show notes, has a great blog post on how you can be compensated. So I just wanted to put that out there. (laughs) 
Thank you. I appreciate it. There are actually a couple of them. (laughs) (laughs) So there's one that's kind of a, here's what you can expect. And there's another that is specifically about asking for compensation. And if you are in some form of developer relations there, you know, your employer may place restrictions on whether or not you can be paid as a speaker, which make sure you're aware of whatever those restrictions are if you have them. But for anyone who is speaking at events, being asked to speak, certainly, often I think there is an assumption that folks, particularly folks with some kind of minoritized identity, will will do these things for exposure or out of the kindness of their heart. And I will certainly do those things for certain organizations. So, you know, if we're talking about a nonprofit or a free event that is volunteer run, sure, absolutely. Let's talk. But I've also absolutely had to have the conversation with profitable companies or at least for-profit companies running events who were like, well, but we're not charging for tickets. And that's the kind of situation where I'm like, no, no, maybe pause. This is a yellow flag. I'm curious. This is, I mean, I, my background as a developer is in kind of the Python ecosystem, and this is a pretty active, mm. active debate in those circles. And I think one of the things that often is discussed, I mean, I, I think a lot of Python events have good kind of grant programs or, or similar things, but do you have, one of the things I've always argued for is kind of a default where you don't have to ask for it, right? Because I do think that like barrier of having to ask, even if there's like aid available or, or grants available, I think kind of having to opt out instead of opt in also is like a pretty powerful, at least for covering of travel costs, right? I mean, I, I think we're we're not even to the point in that ecosystem where we're necessarily paying for people, but at least it's all tends to be nonprofit. So it's all a little fuzzy, but do you have kind of feelings on that part of it or how to kind of if you're going from somewhere where you don't have a lot of resources, how can you make it the most kind of the best structure, I guess? Yeah. So I'm also coming to the topic as a co-organizer of an event that has most years lost money. And so I absolutely understand that it's hard. I'd say for me as a speaker, like the ticket's not really negotiable. And this is also in my mind, I'm still pre-pandemic Aisha and I'm like traveling all over the place to go to these events. Now, of course, well, so we'll maybe talk about that as people are starting to return to either hybrid or in-person events, but also entirely online events. So as a speaker at a hybrid or an in-person event, I expect a ticket. And then beyond that, I also hope for some help with travel and lodging, but there's wiggle room, I guess is my point. Yeah. I hope for a stipend of some kind, but I don't expect it at this point, unless I am being asked to speak. If I've applied through a CFT, a call for proposals, then great. I know what I'm getting into already and I can decide for myself. Like, is this okay? Is it not? Like, does it fit? with my goals, with my budget, with my schedule. But if I'm being asked to speak, I expect to be paid. Yeah, you are I requesting think there's a lot of- my services. 
Yeah, I, this I is, think um, there's a lot of nuance here as well. As someone who's also organized events, but I, I really appreciate your perspective. So, There is a model that I have seen that I really like. Marlena Compton, through Wavelength, did something that I really loved in that she based the speaker compensation on ticket sales and set that expectation ahead of time to say, hey, this is what I'm hoping to be able to pay you. In an ideal world, we get this many ticket sales and I'm able to pay you this. And there are a few tiers. And so that sort of implicitly incentivizes speakers to be shouting from the rooftops about the conference, but it's also setting expectations and it scales based on how well everybody does. But this is, again, a one-person organizational team with, of course, support, but largely driven by one human. And that felt like a good compromise to say, this is the minimum that you will receive as a speaker because you're providing the content. But if together we accomplish this thing, you will also be paid more. Yeah, I love that. It, it really example kind of, of nuance too. Yeah, nuance, transparency, a kind of clarity of of kind of aligned interests. Yeah, I, I love that as a model. So that's a that's a great kind of example to follow. You know, in in the ability to communicate and yeah, kind of make things feel good to everybody. <laughs> I don't have such strong opinions, but I did not know that payment was a thing until I read Aisha's article. I'm like, oh wow. I've been doing this for years and I've never gotten paid, which was fine for me, like where I was in my career. But I know there are many people who would need or appreciate that kind of compensation. But once again, it's nuanced. And then there are community conferences and there are conferences with like different resources. So the only other thing I'll say is that one thing I've really appreciated with online events is Obviously, you're not paying for travel or lodging, but providing equipment to speakers who need it so that one, you get higher quality presentations if you're doing, well, period, higher quality presentation <laughs> in terms of audio visual, but also like that is itself a form of compensation. If that speaker has equipment that they can use to maybe make, cool podcasts. make their own content, <laughs> make cool podcasts. <laughs> I don't want to open a can of worms. So we, let's talk about documentation. Oh my God, <laughs> I can't. But well, we are going to talk about documentation. <laughs> so you have a Twitch channel, don't you? I do. That is true. Are you teaching Rust? So oh I am not teaching Rust. I did over like summer 2021, we, Shale Codes and I, were reading through the Rust book and also sort of spinning off little practice sessions based on that reading. The other consistent show that I was doing, which I'd like to bring back this year, was a show about developer education. It's very related. Probably should have been a podcast to begin with, but <laughs> it's an interview show where I bring people that I want to learn from on and talk to them about different aspects of developer education. So that might be a lot of talking about stuff or about 
his apprenticeship program, his company's apprenticeship program. And that was fantastic. And you know, I talked to Megan Sullivan. We about, interviewed her. She was our yeah. first interview. Yeah. I think she was my first interview as well. <laughs> she's so great. And she's yeah, also so running the book club too, right? On Thursday. Yes. The Development yes. Book Club. Yes. That, uh, On Twitter. Me, Megan. That's me, Megan, and Christina Gordon. Uh, and that's DevEd Book Club for anyone who's interested. <laughs> we'll put the link in the show notes. Perfect. The, the hashtag is silent. <laughs> the hashtag is silent, correct. <laughs> so yeah, back to docs. But no, no, this is this is related because you have several Twitch channels. You also have a lot of content on moderating Discord channels. So the next question is like, how can spaces like Discord and Twitch like complement documentation? I like that question a lot. The conversations that those platforms facilitate, I think are one, a really great way to directly engage with members of a community. And that is important for documentation because certainly if your documentation is open source, that's an avenue for people to begin to feel more comfortable with you and your products and your community and with engaging actively with all of those things, which often in my experience kind of lowers, starts to lower the barrier. And it's also a space where you can identify patterns. So if you're on Twitch and you get the same questions all the time, like I certainly I've had times over the years where like, I will get a question so often I'll, I'll make it a command in my Twitch chat. And if you're finding patterns like that in your Twitch chat, or certainly in your Discord, it's definitely easier to keep track of in something like Discord, that's fertile ground for updates to your documentation. That's a great direct way to figure out like what people are struggling with as well. Like it's not guesswork. Someone's actually coming to your Discord channel or coming to Twitch with this question. That's a wonderful way to mine for like useful content and write it in a documentation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that you know, we talk a lot about things like GitHub PRs or issues serving as their own kind of documentation. And to an extent, Discord certainly can do that as well. So, you know, I might search for, if I'm already in community Discord, I might search to see if my question has been asked before. But I think the most valuable thing is in nurturing that community. It's in bringing people closer to you and your projects. Yeah, I think people come to those spaces in a much different mental state as well, right? Like people come to support, like the, the odds of them being frustrated and not, you know, ready to engage charitably or or kind of, you know, have that brainstorming or, you know, yeah, I just think people come in a much different state of mind and they're much, it's a much different interaction that you can foster there. It's a lot easier to connect with people when they're not directly asking you for something or something isn't broken or whatever. You know, I, I really do think, yeah, the just the kind of interactions you can have there feel much more valuable for kind of building that that connection with with people in your in your community. So 
That's great. That's a good point. Because when people come to your documentation, a lot of times they're already annoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Annoyed or just don't know what to do at all. Right. right. No, I'm glad you put a positive spin on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And it, it's just, I, I do think async communication also feels much more human or, or sorry, synchronous. Like when I send an email and I get an email three hours later and then I go to bed and then I wake up and I, you know, but like actually having that one-on-one engagement with someone also makes them feel, I just think it's much more human in some ways. Like you just really do feel more connected to those people. So yeah, I love kind of the live interaction as a way of kind of having yeah very different interactions, I guess, like to kind of repeat myself. <laughs> and it has that community element to it as well, which might not translate 100% in documentation when you're reading it by yourself on your machine. Definitely. There's a richness there. Yeah. Especially with the chat. I'm thinking about, is it the developer book club? I am going to keep messing the name up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Dev Ed Book Club. The Dev Ed, the Dev Ed Book Club. Like there's definitely like a, almost a sense of community. Like you see the same people like every Thursday. Absolutely. I love it so much. Our first book was Docs for Developers. And we got to finish that out with a Twitter panel with some of the authors. It was wonderful. And we're now, we've just started The Programmer's Brain. And it's just so great to be, still be able to have this space for discussion on those topics. It's been a long time, at least for me, since I was able to engage in that way. It was like celebrities, like that docs for developers, like that Twitter space was like talking to a bunch of celebrities. And they were actually looking and reading through the chats throughout the whole, like, I guess, six or seven weeks. And so that was like a satisfying end to that book. I really love the setup. Thank you so much. Of course. Yeah. And then thank you to all of them. It was so wonderful. And they were so generous with their time, really from the beginning. For kind of a book club, but I feel like that was like you... That, that story is like the perfect answer, right? The kind of that ability to engage people where where they already are. I think that's a, a lovely, kind of shows the, the value of working in public in a way. I, we just kind of put it out there that we were going to do this book club and Jared reached out and was like, hey, if you want, we could do a, an author panel. And I was like, yes, I will come back to you. So amazing. I love the humbleness as well, right? It's yes. like, well, if I could bother you to like give you some of my time, you know? <laughs> I know. Uh, wait, no, I, I, that was one of the questions I was going to ask actually is why you chose Twitter instead of something like Discord. I thought that was that's super cool. I didn't realize they'd come to the end of the book club. That's, that's really fun. They were so generous too. They were generous. They were humble. It felt like they were excited. Yeah. You know, like, the, yeah. I love the energy of that Twitter space. Like, I was definitely a fan. Oh, by the way, I have not been at the book club now because I just got the book, The Programmer's Brain. And so I'm reading through it now. So I'll be It's all through. good. Anybody is welcome to join at any time, whether you've read the book or not. It's all good. <laughs> Don't say that. I'll be there with uninformed opinions. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We'll, we'll add to the discussion. People who have read the book will be able to jump in. <laughs> Well, we're coming to the end of the show. And so number one, 
Aisha, we want to thank you again for coming on. Like this conversation has so many gems. Like, thank you for being generous with your time. Please. I'm so happy to do it. This is such a great podcast. I'm really excited about it. Thanks. We usually ask if you have something to promote, but I want to promote something for you and then I'll, the floor is yours. <laughs> so Aisha Codes is Aisha's website, a wonderful blog, and she has a shop and she's selling a sticker that's a spite driven development. <laughs> so, <laughs> so go check that sticker out and yeah. The testimonial is more powerful than the pitch. You got to get yeah. the third party cred there. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> that itself came out of a Twitch stream, actually. I was ranting to my chat and somebody was like, oh, you should make a spite driven development sticker. And I was like, you know what? Yes. Nice. Very sparkly as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we really do appreciate you coming on and yeah, I really have lots of interesting insight and I'm, I can't wait to hear about the organizations you build. It's like a Dr. Seuss book. That's how we'll get people into the profession. <laughs> yes. Oh, the organizations you build. Well, thank That's you all quote. so much. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, aside from the sticker and the, and the book club, since my new job is beginning just a few days after recording, I'm not sure what else I will have to to plug, but hopefully, you know, we'll, you'll, you'll see me on Twitter. I'm just Aisha Blake, most places. And I'll look forward to connecting with more Docs folks. Lovely. Thank you for joining us today. You can find us on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would even like to come on as a guest, please email us at letstalkdocs at sustainoss.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, keep writing and shipping those docs.